Hi everyone, welcome to the Fancy Lab Code Guild. Today, you're going to hear a recording of an Ask Me Anything hosted on March 3rd with Sebastian Kochioba, an independent researcher and amateur biologist who works from the comfort of his home lab. This episode is sponsored by SciFind, the expert network for scientific troubleshooting. Being mindful that it is a live conversation and so has a format that involves the audience. We're going to dive right into it. Enjoy the AMA. For anyone who doesn't know um, Sebastian, I just want to give him a quick intro. Um, you know, Sebastian's an amateur biologist. He's an independent researcher. He's a plant whisperer, micro wrangler. You know, you can list off in a Daenerys-esque fashion all of his titles. <laughs> He's one of the founders of Binomica Labs. He works from the comfort of his home lab, typically, um, and, you know, surrounded by a lot of his plants and microscopic critters. The thing about Sebastian is he's a really unique voice in what is typically a kind of rigid and clinical atmosphere in science. And I think in a lot of ways, he's a really prime example of what it means to pursue scientific curiosity at its purest form. I've been a big fan following his Twitter for a long time, and it's really beautiful to see these kind of sometimes humorous and oftentimes insightful recountings of his adventures and activities that you know he does every day and it's basically it's like a constant source of joy and i think for any other researcher or scientist following him it's probably a similar pleasure you know i'm really happy to have you here sebastian and uh get a chance to kind of talk about your work and your stories thanks so much i don't I don't know how to take compliments well, but thank you so much. That That's a very just, generous introduction. They're just facts. <laughs> um, but to kind, of, to kind of start a bit, I would like to show, uh, Sebastian has been sharing some of his information on uh, the platform on SciFind. SciFind, if you guys are not familiar, is a, um, we're a troubleshooting platform for scientists. So scientists share information beyond the publication, um, things that, you know, we typically would not end up in a publication pipeline. We would get here. So you can kind of see, uh, and he can, and Sebastian will probably go more into this um, when he talks about his stories, but you can kind of see how things are classified here. And I was talking with my, uh, Dr. Young before about this, uh, bleach, <laughs> bleach mishaps with seeds. <laughs> this story was very fun. I loved this on the sugar. Domino on, on, ongoing story yeah <laughs> um and some and some awesome protocols on this i didn't even i'm maybe i'm just like a spoiled brat and so when i was reading this i'm like wait you can actually do it without a column it was like it, it, the concept never occurred to me even though it seems very obvious but yeah, i'm a, definitely are... a fan of classic methods for sure. <laughs> yes. So these are some of the things that Sebastian has shared. And um, anybody can feel free to share the kind of tips and tricks and methods that they've come across in their research. And at the end of the day, it helps people get their things done. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just to come to some of these conclusions, like in Sebastian's case, like it can take months, weeks to even figure out these small optimizations that, you know, we can be familiar with. Yeah, and sometimes by not knowing what you're doing, you end up discovering yet another way to get to the same place. And that that like I'm in love with recombineering and I'm learning every single day just with more and more experiments just how many ways in which you can approach the same kind of the the same kind of uh, end product. And I'm really looking forward to sharing that because it kind of it's not that it breaks dogma or anything, but it just shows that there are resiliencies and all, different alternatives to doing it versus the the tried and true way which don't get me wrong works great um but I, i'd always try to develop redevelop protocols for like the most accessibility possible like don't use an electroporator i've been doing heat shock and it seems to be working so yeah yeah there's all these amazing ways to kind of work through these problems and each of us have our own great contributions to make and it's taken us time to come to them and this is a way to kind of get validation from your community to share with people stuff that otherwise would never really see the light of day. And it can be hard to structure this type of information. If you're talking about like Twitter or other things like I can't find things again. So this makes it nice, um, classified and stored in this manner. So yep. and on that note, 
um, I'll kind of let Sebastian take over and talk a little bit about his stories, his current research, and all the other fun stuff. <laughs> cool. Uh, OK, where to begin? Um, I guess one, one question that, uh, that people tend to ask is just like, how did you start? Um, and so to, to kind of briefly summarize that, um, there was, it was really a very gradual transition between starting to be curious about plant biology or biology in general and where I am now. Like there was no like hard point where I'm just like, I'm a biologist now. Um, it was more just this internal kind of need to understand some of the stuff that I've been just so aesthetically driven to, like plants in general. I remember when I was in, in uh, I was at a park, this was in like middle school, and uh, along the fence we were like playing tag or something, and along the fence I saw this giant maple leaf, right, and it was, it was perfect, it was just this enormous green flawless leaf and it was just sticking out of the fence, and I was drawn to it in like this very strange way that I haven't experienced, haven't experienced prior to that point, and I just see like like I stopped playing. I tell my friends, it's like, hold on a sec. I'll be right back. I just need to see something. And they're like, okay, he's off in his own world. I guess we'll keep playing. And, and I go to this leaf and I'm just, I'm just, I literally held it in my hand, just staring at it. And I plucked it off and uh, I, I gave it to my mom. and just like, don't bend this. Like I need to look at it later. Uh, and the park session ended, we came back and I was just like fascinated by it. And I was like trying to get my like, desk lamp or something at an angle to just see it better. I didn't have a microscope or anything. And I didn't know why I was so interested, but it ended up just being that they're so aesthetically pleasing, but the closer you look, the more com complex it becomes, right? And that's been this like obvious theme in my life that the more and more I learn, the more excited and curious I am about the living world. And so one thing led to another and I wanted to like, I was obsessed with Dexter's lab. I thought the idea of like doing science at home was cool, but I had no idea what science was right this was this was like like i understood that people can generate knowledge i'm speaking in hindsight like i understood that I, that people can ge generate knowledge to a given extent but i couldn't really fathom how i could ever do that like i didn't i wasn't really the best student at school i had no idea if you needed to be like super smart in order to do science or if there was any type of like talent right because i was not not good in any academic sense um but uh, yeah, but I still wanted to know more, and I was reading more about, uh, trying to read about plant biology. This was in like high school, and a uh, a Mother's Day was coming up, uh, one of those years, and I wanted to get my mom a gift, but I was like dead broke and I had absolutely no money, and so I was, I, she loved orchids, right? And I wanted to get her an orchid, and I saw that orchids were about like sixty bucks a piece, and I thought that was ridiculous, right? Like that's that's absolutely absurd, and. Um, uh, so I went to I went to Home Depot, this like house uh, uh, home goods and hardware store, big big like warehouse store, and with a friend, and we were working on a project for his house. And in the garden section, I saw that someone was like taking orchids and putting them into a garbage bag, just kind of tossing them in. And I I go to go to him and ask, I was like, what what was this? <laughs> like why are why are you throwing this out? And uh, they're just like, oh no, once they stop flowering, they don't have value. And they won't flower until like next year, so we it can't just occupy the shelf, so we just throw them out. And I'm like, really? Hmm. Okay. And so like I kind of like loitered in the store, and I saw that they were throwing it out in a particular dumpster. And uh, like literally later that night, I went to the dumpster and I took the bag full of orchids and I brought it home. And I'm like, okay, this is free. I'm like sure, dumpster diving is like I guess illegal, but the dump the my in in my defense, the dumpster was on the public side of the street, and it didn't say Home Depot on the dumpster. I wasn't like in their parking lot taking it out. This is more of just like when garbage gets collected, they put all their trash bags out on the street, and this one was just kind of like spilling over with orchid parts. So I'm just like, okay. And I took as many as I could. I brought them home, and I immediately hit the internet and I tried to find out like how to grow orchids. And I saw that people were saying that there's this uh, material called cakey paste, which is plant hormones mixed with lanolin. Right, like a sheep uh, oil, and uh, it forms this paste. And Hawaiians used to, I mean, still do. Folks in Hawaii uh, use it, and in Indonesia and in Thailand, they use it as an orchid breeding tool, where if you cut the flower spike at a very particular place, um, you open up one of the dormant buds along the flower spike. This is before the flower actually opens, before the flower spike blooms, 
and you apply some cakey paste to the edge, what forms is a cakey. And uh, a cakey is basically um, a baby plant, essentially, that grows out of the bud tissue of the orchid. So it's basically this like clonal propagation step without using seeds. And my mind was blown, right? So I put all, all the, the plants uh, under these like shop lights. I started learning more about uh, grow lights. And eventually I just had this like mini greenhouse of sorts in, in my bedroom. And, and slowly but surely I was getting flower spikes. I did the cakey thing. And uh, I started, instead of getting a flower bud from that dormant bud, I got a whole plant. Right? They just started forming leaves and then the roots across a couple months. And uh, I had like perfect timing with, with all of the cakey stuff just by pure happenstance. And uh, come that mother day, Mother's Day, instead of giving my mom one orchid, I gave her like 300 of them, each with their own, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, each with their own flower spikes and everything. And I, I showed her how to do the cakey stuff. And this was like a really cool bonding moment with me and her because she still does that to this day. She has these like crazy orchids from the very beginning that have just like clonally been propagated and they look really messed up. Um, and I love that. But that kind of made me feel like there's a, uh, there's a sense of agency when it comes to the living world that you can have an impact on it. And that impact is like tangible. And so uh, after some more digging, I found out that people can do uh, orchid propagation of seeds, right? And that there's a, there's a, reasonable market for it where you just take these like old glass milk jugs fill them with like agar um activated charcoal and uh, coconut endosperm uh, basically coconut milk and a banana you make this like nasty smoothie uh, pour it into these milk jugs and put orchid seeds on them and now orchids are epiphytes so they in in the wild they grow on tree bark and there's a special fungus in most orchids that need to enter the orchid seeds because the orchid seeds are like dust. They're like maybe like 50 to 100 cells. And um, they don't have much endosperm. They don't have any like food reserves. So they have to land on a particular kind of bark, right? And then the bark has to have this fungus. And the fungus has to contaminate the orchid, uh, enter the orchid. The hyphae have to enter the orchid. And then they have this like mutual relationship. And that's the only way that certain species of orchids can um, germinate. So like they make millions of seeds and only like 10 of them actually land properly. But by using uh, coconut endosperm, which has um, uh, plant hormones inside of it, and bananas, which have all, all plant hormones as well, um, mixing that all together, you actually have this like orchid germination media, right? This like kind of homemade orchid germination media where every single seed, more or less, will germinate. And so I started doing orchid flasking, uh, and I decided, hey, can I sell one online and uh, on eBay? And slowly but surely, I was getting orchid or orders where people would send me their orchid seeds, and I'd give them back a flax, flask about three months later. And so I was developing like tissue culture techniques for myself. And uh, but I thought that that was like the be all end all. That just like breeding the orchids, growing them, that was interesting. But I didn't know anything that I could do more of until college. Right now, I went to Stony Brook University, and then at Stony Brook University. Um, uh, I was a bio major, just general biology, because I was like, I want to be a doctor. But like my grades are garbage. So that, that dream kind of exploded. Um, so as a biology major, I needed to have do a research rotation in order for me to qualify for graduation. And long story short, I went through the list of all of the, um, the labs that they were offering. And there was one uh, out of all the labs, it was like HIV, cancer, cancer, HIV, uh, human stuff, human stuff. And one, one lab that was available in my semester was a plant lab by um, Vitaly Sitovsky which at the time I had no idea, but he's like one of the godfathers of agrobacterium, the bacteria that's used to uh, transform plants. Uh, his lab was uh, one of the labs that have elucidated the key steps that in the agrobacterium-mediated gene transfer process to fully, to better understand um, all the mechanisms required that are happening between the microbe and its host, because agrobacterium is a pathogen, and how it transfers DNA from itself to the plant to make food and shelter around the, the microbe in the form of a tumor. This is Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Now, um, again, I had no idea of genetic engineering or much of any of this. I just, I went up to his lab and he's like, okay, why, why do you want to be a part of this? I'm just like, well, I'm a bio major and I need to do research. And he's like, yeah, yeah, but why do you want to do this? I'm like, okay, so I don't like human stuff. I don't like mammals. I do like plants. Plants are cool. And so, uh, so he started laughing. He's like, you, you like plants? I'm like, yeah, I do orchid flasking. I actually have some tissue culture experience. And he immediately is like, okay, I'm going to put you in contact with my senior postdoc, and I want you to start tomorrow. And I'm like, start what? He's like, we're doing genetic engineering research. 
And, and I'm like, I have no, nothing of that. He's like, yeah, that's fine. You're an undergraduate. You're not supposed to know. I'm here to teach you. Let's, let's do this. And so um, within a couple of weeks, I learned about genetic engineering and the process of agrobacterium-mediated gene transfer, and I fell madly in love. That was, that was the moment where I'm just like, I have way more agency on, on, uh, in working with plants than I ever thought. I thought I was at the mercy of like breeding cycles and the time from seed to seed and all that. While that's still true, and the majority of plant biotech lives and dies in field trials, but the actual ability to manipulate the genes is way more accessible than I thought um, from a financial standpoint, from a knowledge standpoint. And so that kind of set me on this like path of, um, of wanting to do plant, bio, biotechnology, plant bioengineering, um, ideally as a career, right? But some family and financial stuff happened and I had to drop out of the university, um, which was unfortunate. But um, the senior postdoc of the lab at the time, Addy Zaltzman, he was leaving uh, the university to start his own startup. And he contacted me and he said, hey, um, you're pretty good in the lab. Do you want a job? I heard you, I heard you left Stony Brook. And I'm just like, yeah, uh, what do you mean a job? He's like, yeah, I'll pay you. Do you want to be at my tech? I'm like, absolutely. This will be a chance to learn more, even though I had to like, leave university. It was like eight months of hell. <laughs> that was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was like biotech boot camp. And it was the most uh, educational experience I've ever had because while he was going around trying to raise money, uh, I literally built a lab with him. It was an empty room when I first started with like a couple chairs and it ended up being a, like a fully functioning lab at the time. And we were both kind of in that frugal mindset of like, how can we um, buy used equipment and fix it? How we can how can we repurpose like a refrigerator as like an incubating cent uh, uh, a shaker incubator, and all of these things? We were kind of just like vibing off each other. And this was a, like before like the popularity of three D printing really took off. This was back in 2012, and uh, we didn't really have access to like phenomenal three D printers back then. But the few things I could three D print actually came in handy, and I was using Tinkercad, the program that's free and it's made for kindergartners. I still do use that. It's one of my favorite CAD tools. Highly recommend it. Um, but uh, yeah, so we were like building all these tools to try to save money. <clears throat> and we ended up making a proof of concept plant for um, a self-nitrogen fixing tobacco. And he filed a patent for it, which was granted. And um, basically, we took these three genes uh, from nitrogenase, NIF, H, D, and K, from a, uh, an algae that can do photosynthesis and fix nitrogen at the same time. And that... Uh, uh, and we just basically took those and overdrove them, expressed them like crazy with the 35S promoter and uh, had chloroplast tags. So all the proteins would go to the chloroplast. Um, and so the, uh, the end result wasn't the holy grail, of course, but it on acid wash sand, our tobacco grew about an inch tall and it was like kind of lime green while the wild type was yellow and dying in about a quarter inch tall. So there was proof of concept. Again, not the holy grail. It definitely can't fix nitrogen by itself in a, in a, in a significant way. But it was one step against the old gray beards who were like, it can't be done, like stroking their beards. Because um, nitrogenase is sensitive to oxygen and plants make oxygen, right? So, especially in the chlor chloroplast. Um, so the uh, idea was mostly out of attrition. Like, can you overexpress these three genes to insane levels, have them chloroplast localized, and make their mRNA look structurally similar to Rubisco in terms of codon frequency? He had this really cool idea of instead of doing codon optimization, you would basically look at Rubisco and saying, okay, uh, prolines. Of all the prolines, how many of them in what position are the what, what choice of codons match this? And we, we positionally across, across the entire sequence of the, of the, um, of the coding sequence, um, basically match the codons to look like Rubisco. And we didn't have time to do grand analysis, but we did a, a radioactive nitrogen gas chamber and grew the plants inside that chamber and then sent it out for mass spec. And uh, Rubisco was hot in some of the plants, right? So we got a positive signal for it for the N15 uh, incorporated Rubisco uh, under mass spec. And so that was great proof of concept, but the investors weren't really happy. And eventually they bled us out for a $600,000 convertible note. And so that was my first experience with a startup of helping grow a startup and then failing within a year, right? Um, and it was uh, like basically eight months of absolute hell, but I learned to work incredibly independently. Uh, I worked how to work, learned how to work frugally. And, um, and these, these, and the, the last part is like, I learned to not doubt myself in the sense of like, 
I can learn this, it's accessible, and I find biology to be one of the most accessible natural sciences. Um, because you start, you start from this area where we, we know a ton, but there's still so much more that we can learn, that we can explore. And uh, for one reason or another, plant biologists tend to be incredibly friendly and incredibly open to even like crazy ideas. Like some of the, my, my fondest encounters with uh, formal academics are uh, plant biologists. Like they're just super chill. And I'm, I don't know if it's just like, quote unquote, there's no money in plants or, um, but I mean, there is obviously, uh, but there's just something about the culture of plant biology and plant bioengineering in general that just has this like warmth to it. And it might just be my very biased uh, viewpoint from a narrow perspective, but uh, something that I found really nurturing, right? Because all my life I've been looking for a mentor, right? Or to have mentorship. And because of these like kind of unfortunate uh, series of events within my life, I was never able to be a formal, um, in, in formal academic spaces. Uh, I ended up trying to be the mentor I always wanted in, with my friends and quote unquote students that kind of like, uh, for lack of a better word, study under me, right? Um, like if somebody asked me, hey, I like what you're doing. I want to do the same thing. I actually take a decent amount of time to try to help them along. And one of the experiments that I can't wait to like get back to in full is actually the pedal smiths. So I started this Facebook group called the pedal smith um, genetic engineering uh, research party. And uh, some folks are actually here. Um, uh, Adrian and I think Yogesh is going to be joining at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, they're from that group. And I'm just like slowly starting a little bioengineering collective with no experience necessary. And there are folks like uh, my friend Chris, who is um, a BASF employee uh, or former, I think he's semi-retired and uh, like comes from like a big background of just bio hardcore bioengineering. And then there's folks who have no experience whatsoever. We're trying to kind of like grow a community as like a little experiment. Um, but that being said, there, um, uh, this, this kind of like, lack of uh, of guidance when it comes to plant bioengineering within amateur circles really incentivized me to try to document my work in a way that uh, that are accessible for people and so a lot of the the things i focus on all the projects that i do are focused on trying to get people uh, uh not only just interested in plant bioengineering or bio, bio amateur biology in general but that the projects that i propose are as affordable as humanly possible um there's a lot of consideration when it comes to like me starting a new project where if it's, if it requires expensive infrastructure and stuff, I try to not pretend like it doesn't even exist. And I only go from things that uh, my research partner, Sung, who's a member here on SciFind, came up with this thesis called two cups and a string, right? So like what kind of science can you do with mean, with uh, really min minimal resources? And uh, this has been this like interesting demo scene adjacent kind of biology where you can just go outside into nature and using kitchen media and stuff, maybe do microbiology or phage sequencing now that we have outsourcing um, companies that don't charge that much, you know, like Plasmidsaurus now does like really, really large um, sequencing uh, fragments or just like whole plasmids for relatively cheap, way cheaper than it was when we first started by like orders of magnitude. And so as all these technologies trickle down um, and it's affordable to everyone else, and there's nothing that within reason, at least in the United States, doesn't say that you can't do biosafety level one research at home. There's no law that says you can or can't do. It's an interesting gray area that I like being in. Um, but uh, more importantly, working to the, edge of the, to, to the edge of the law is something that I'm really um, passionate about because I want to be able to have at the end of the day, like a dossier of amateur biologists doing good, meaningful work in case that somebody decides to like knee-jerk policy change BSL-1 work where like it becomes Germany, where stuff that I'm doing in, in, my, in my home uh, could be classified as a federal felony in German courts, right? So depending on where you live, what I'm do the, the umbrella work of what I'm doing could be in different shades of, of legality, right? And so a lot of the focus that I am that I'm doing now is more of on uh, microbial exploration, right? Like explore the, the living world around you and document and classify that because there are more, more questions in science than there are stars in the universe, right? There's, uh, hate to quote Rumsfeld, but there is the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And we can't know what we don't know until we know. I know that sounds a little silly, but um, that basically just means that there are so many things where you can contribute to meaningfully as an amateur biologist. And if you, even just with plants, like if you look at the, um, if you go on GenBank and you sort by organisms and you look at plant, plant genomes, published genomes, 
right? There's about 450,000 land plants uh, in the world, as far as we know, and uh, a little bit under 3,000 have been fully sequenced to refer- reference sequence quality, you know? And I mean, plant sequencing is an undertaking of enormous levels, but the beginnings can start really, really humbly. You can get an Illumina sequence for about 100 bucks, and sure, that's just a bunch of scattered contigs, but that SRI data you can upload, right? Um, with Nanopore, if you pull resources together, a flow cell is about 900 bucks, and they're getting way, way more accurate with each possible iteration uh, of the technology. And it'll get to a point where this type of, uh, of technology will, will be accessible to the point where maybe a high school class could grab one plant randomly from, from the sidewalk, identify it with their, with their uh, barcoding sequences to see if it's known, and if there's minimal research on it, just publish a draft, right? Just publish the data. It doesn't even have to be fully assembled. Like there's so many ways in which you can meaningfully contribute um, on the molecular biology level and, or even just domestication. I mean, you can grab a random plant. Uh, obviously, you know, don't try not to um, work with things that are toxic. So like learning plant biology from the, the botanical side of things, like learning how to identify certain plants, that's super helpful. But then you can take that and bring it into tissue culture. And you can publish a tiny technical note on saying like tissue culture, successful tissue culture of this particular species, whatever it may be. Or um, you find a, a wild microbe and after doing some 16S barcoding, you see that it's within a, uh, a, a prokaryotic group that doesn't necessarily harbor pathogens. Um, you, could, uh, you could do sequencing on that, right? Um, a microbe, um, Illumina 400 meg or 600 meg, I think. Yeah, 600 meg, um, 600 million Illumina paradend reads is like $115 right now through like Seek Center. And there's a bunch of competitors that are trying to drop that price substantially. So you can essentially find a microbe in the wild, grow it up minimally, extract the DNA and send it to them. And now there's even companies that will extract the DNA for you as long as it's not like crazy uh, multi-layered Dinococcus thing, which is a different story altogether. But um, where you could just send in the sequences, I mean, send in the, a sample of the bacteria and they will sequence it for you and give you back the data and you just work on your laptop. And that's true exploration done at a, on, a, on an amateur's budget. And so it's so, uh, um, it's an amazing time to be alive when it comes to amateur biology now more than ever, because we're right at the cusp where like AI tools are getting more refined as well. There's so many questions that you can answer. And from my tiny bubble of uh, Sci Twitter that I'm chronically on, um, they seem super welcoming, right? And whenever I like show some re- uh, results or something like that, I get messages from like established professors or grad students, research scientists who are just like, hey, could you tell me more about that protocol? Or could you share plasmid with me? And it feels like a part of a community. And that's something I've never felt before. I never thought I would feel as an outsider to the ivory tower, right? Because I have no university affiliations whatsoever. I'm just some rando on the internet. And uh, I post results and people seem to uh, find value in that. And then Guy approached me with SciFind, and I'm just like, oh, this is perfect. I can, like, dump all these, like, little, like, hey, did you know uh, blips, right? So I'm just going to, like, obsessively start posting there, um, going through my lab notebook and seeing if there's anything useful. And because being able to contribute to something that's archived is super important. Because doing science as a hobby, it's a little bit, um, the unfortunate side of it is that if you don't write it down, and if what you wrote down isn't archived, it's as if it never happened, because it'll eventually vanish. Like, your research dies with you. And which is unfortunate because it could be useful. And I found people reading my blogs or reading my open lab notebook. They're like, hey, this really helped me in my research. Thank you so much. And, uh, and that was a wonderful feeling. But also I realized that more people can do exactly this. More people can contribute in the same type of way and have this like communal aspect to research that hasn't really been around for a very long time, if ever. And so I'm super, super excited to be, be able to contribute in my own small way towards this Amazing. Damn. <laughs> I love this. I love the story. The I like the we all got to hear the origin of the tiny green cell. <laughs> origin story. Um, just to kind of start off the AMA, I do want to ask one quick question. Uh, just about what are the what are your current research topics that you're doing right now that you can disclose or talk about that are you're obsessing about <laughs> okay okay um so there's a couple i try to rein it in um okay so i have uh one major project called flowers for everyone which is kind of self-defining um and my idea is that i've been hunting for this thing called a canvas organism right and that's something i'm trying to 
work a thesis around. Like, what is the ideal flowering plant that you can use as a genetic canvas to paint patterns on, to change the shape of the petals, et cetera, et cetera? Kind of like a hello world sandbox that's not just like poop bacteria that changes color when you put a plasmid in, right? So like plant genetic engineering with a tangible component, but that tangibility doesn't necessarily interfere with the rest of the organism. Because I find petal tissue to be in this interesting state where um, a plant can survive without the, without the genes to flower, it just can't reproduce, right? So you don't have that pollination action going. But in, in, um, it, the, if you break some of the, uh, the floral genes, you sure you get weird morphologies. Like uh, my friend of mine, Min, knocked out Clavada CLV3, uh, and it started doing these wild type of phenotypic variations to the plant, but it wasn't lethal, right? So there are things that you can do with those homeotic genes and things that you can uh, target to petal tissue that I find less uh, inhibitory to the growth of the plant, right? So there's this really nice, like, sandbox that uh, would be so, super cool to see, like, high school students, I mean, ideally middle school students, but high school students and undergraduates work in, um, in designing new flowers, right? Like, can you use a, a particular... Uh, particular gene circuits for color, uh, pigmentation, localization, uh, floral shape, the elaboration of the petal tissues and how it turns into different uh, final patterns. Basically, like the jargony thing is the spatiotemporal control of uh, pigmentation in petal tissue. That's one of the, the main focuses that I have and how to make that accessible and not you say words like spatiotemporal. Um, so that's one of the main projects. Another one is recombineering, right? So I'm, I've, I've just become obsessed with the idea of knocking out genes from the actual chromosome of the microbe. Because from the very beginning of my forays into molecular biology, it's always been on the plasmid level, right? Like get a plasmid from a friend, uh, tweak it a little bit, put it into, into bacteria, and it's kind of like a script injection into a more complex system. But now that I'm learning more, I'm more interested in the system itself. I'm interested in how transgenes are, um, how can we make transgenes more permanent Right? Like, what type of phrasing do you need within, in, in a genomic sense, I mean, in a genetic sense? What kind of phrasing is required in order for you to be able to put in your transgene and it doesn't just dilute out in like eight generations? Or it stunts the growth tremendously, like what I'm experiencing right now, unfortunately. And so, this type of like nuanced uh, interaction of the actual chromosome, like inside the organism, of like under the hood, is something I find fascinating. The third project is uh, sugar selection, which I touched on a little bit in my uh, misadventures in microbial recombineering. Um, so antibiotics are, are a problem um, in many cases, but for the amateur biologist, it's a unique problem where we don't necessarily have access globally um, to the same levels of accessibility, getting the antibiotics necessary to do uh, molecular cloning, right? Like canamycin and ampicillin is kind of easy to get here in the States. There are many suppliers that sell residentially, but in, uh, in many, many other countries, these are frontline antibiotics, right, which you need a prescription for, which are regulated heavily for good reason. You don't necessarily need antibiotics for selection. Like many people in um, working with yeast, uh, they do oxytrophic selection where you have dropout media, where it's all the amino acids minus one. Um, but buying all those amino acids are really expensive. And uh, especially for the amateur, it's very expensive. Making minimal media is a pain, and we'd have to do it with this project I'm about to tell you. But trying to level the playing field to allow people to do molecular biology without relying on frontline life-saving medicines uh, frivolously used for personal exploration. And I'm not saying that personal exploration is frivolous. It's just in the eyes of regulators, that is a misappropriation of medical life-saving technologies. I mean, medical uh, materials. So uh, my idea is sugar, right? So sucrose. Um, something I've noticed is that many lab strains of E. coli actually lack the CSC operon, um, which is responsible for sugar metabolism. And it has a uh, invertase, CSCA, a sucrose permease, CSCB, and a regulatory element, CSCK, which is also a fructose enzyme, right? Because when you break suc sucrose, it turns into glucose and fructose, right? That disaccharide. Now, um, because some of these lab strains don't work, don't have these genes, but wild type, many wild type E. coli do, what you can do is you can take those genes and complement them in a E. coli that doesn't have them and use that as positive selection. Um, and so I tried that. I made a plasmid where I have the CSEA gene and the CSEB gene expressing, 
Uh, and I tried to select on minimal media where the only carbon source is sucrose. And against wild type, I was getting no colonies. And then the other one I was getting um, many colonies. And so I'm just like, okay, that's, that's interesting. But the colonies were different sizes, right? So this positive selection adds um, an interesting layer of not as uniform in terms of distribution of the colonies. And also later I saw that on the negative plate, I was getting like one or two colonies every now and then. So something was happening. And so um, I thought, okay, if I can get down the sucrose selection, could I also do the same thing for agrobacterium, right? Because agrobacterium needs its own uh, antibiotics, and those are even more rare, like rifampicin or cefotaxamine to kill the agrobacterium. Um, and those are, uh, those are hard to find in other countries, in Europe, um, good luck. From an amateur perspective, like I know some friends who've been trying to, and it's, it's a nightmare. But more importantly, uh, if you knock out the genes for CSC, the sucrose operon in agro, which it has it, unfortunately, if you knock out those genes and complement that on a plasmid, you now have an E. coli agrobacterium shuttle vector. And I mean, you can start thinking that you can knock out other sugar metabolism genes and complement those on, on, on plasmids so that you have this like counter selection system. You can use the SACB gene, uh, which converts sucrose into leaven sucrose, which is a poison, and have this like negative selection, positive selection um, back and forth where you can do molecular cloning without the need for antibiotics where you give the microbe the ability to eat a carbon source that it otherwise can't. I mean, there's a patent by Syngenta that expired not too long ago called PMI, phosphomannose isomerase. And the phosphomannose isomerase gene from E. coli, if you express it in plants, it gives the plants ability to eat mannose, a common sugar used in uh, urinary tract infection treatment. You can find it over the counter. It's a little bit more expensive than sucrose, but not by much. Um, but uh, plants normally can't eat mannose. So now you have a positive selection system for plants. Coupled the entire, everything I just said, and now you have an E. coli for cloning agrobacterium shuttle vector system, and then agrobacterium to plants um, system without using herbicides or antibiotics. Essentially like antibiotic-free uh, molecular cloning and plant transformation. And that pipeline, if I refine it well enough, could easily be extrapolated to a curricular setting in a, in a developing nation or in a country where these type of antibiotics are highly restricted, or even here in the States, I don't see why not. And all you're begetting every time is the ability or inability to eat a given carbon source, which is way different than uh, frivolously giving bacteria the ability to, eat, uh, to, to resist antibiotics and then improperly disposing of those bacteria, con thus contributing a small part to the antibiotic resistance issue that we have. So those are the three main projects that I'm working on, absolutely obsessed with, and have been driving me into madness for the last couple of years. Amazing. It's really exciting to hear about that. So I'm going to open up the floor for everyone to kind of ask questions, chat. I have a question. Sure. Um, hi, my name is uh, Talos. My, my real name is Jake. Um, so I'll be speaking with you people. Uh, I've actually been talking with Sebastian a little bit on Instagram. He's been enormously helpful with my tissue culturing attempts. Um, and I just wanted to ask, when you were sort of boot camping your way through the startup experience, what did you find the most helpful? Hmm. And just figuring out all these really highly complex things. Sure, sure. Um, so what, what my boss did the reason why I called it boot camp is that like every single day he'd be like, he'd open our first interaction as soon as I walked through the door at like eight in the morning. He's like, Sebastian, you're fired. And I'm like, oh God, what did I do now? And he would pick, he would like nitpick some, some just tiny thing that I did wrong. It's like, oh, when you autoclave the thing, you didn't uh, put the indicator tape or, or um, like you, uh, when you were doing PCR yesterday, you left the samples out on the room temp for too long, just tiny little things. And that slowly became um, a habit. Right. This, this slowly became this like constant vigilance. And I found that incredibly helpful, uh, albeit a little bit abusive, not going to lie. Um, but uh, that made me really pay attention to what I was doing. So one of the most important things that I got back from that, which I think can be uh, given with self-discipline, is um, be present when you're doing things. Right. Like look, constantly check your pipette to make sure that it's at the right state. Be aware of your sleeves, especially if you're doing tissue culture and you happen to wear a lab coat, which personally I, I don't really recommend. Um, lab coats get dirty and we don't wash them often. Um, but like be aware of your body when you're doing tissue culture, your movements, how you're going over things. It's easy to neglect these things. And these tiny mistakes then snowball into a failure of an experiment. 
And, uh, and trust me, I speak out of, of experience of failure. Like if ever I, I give advice, it's never because like I'm speaking from on high. This is 100% like I've been there, I failed, and it's something that you can avoid. So the number one thing I got from that startup experience was being present while I do things has dramatically changed, especially when you're doing things new, right? Like if you have never run this protocol before, being really present and being uh, focused, not distracted, has saved me tons and tons of time. The second thing that I really got out of that startup thing, especially with complex stuff, is having somebody to talk to. So, so like a lot of my, my lab practice, unfortunately, is, is private. That's actually one of the reasons why I started the Pedalsmiths Research Group, just because I got like super lonely uh, in doing this project and not being able to talk to folks who are, are on the same page as you. Not, not the level thing, that doesn't exist, but just on the same page. Like, hey, you know about tissue culture, let me just bounce ideas. So the most important thing I've learned from that is like having, like talking with my boss on like a peer-to-peer level of just, hey, what do you think about this experiment? Or why do you think it's not working for me? That type of peer-to-peer interaction is so important. And uh, like doing, doing bio, like amateur biology, don't do it by yourself, right? Like when, when Sung uh, became a part of all this, when I, when I basically joined his nonprofit, Binomica Labs, um, all the projects that we had were so mutually intertwined, but also just, I love just talking to him and bouncing ideas off of him, right? And, or, and he was, he's just like one of my biggest critics of stuff that I do and keeps me in check. And I really value that. So having a, a research partner, even if it's remotely, just find one extra person that you'd be willing to confide in on a research level to be able to bounce ideas off of. Having that short of a mentor, an actual mentor, having that has, has made me grow tremendously both in my private practice and in my ability to work for startups. Like right now I'm employed with Neoplants in France and I'm doing genetic engineering in Pothos for them. And just on their Slack channel, just bouncing ideas and having that innate uh, need to have conversations with people about the work I'm doing um, has opened so many doors and opened a lot of um, really meaningful uh, business relationships when it comes to collaborations and things like that. So like be vocal and try not to do things by yourself. Don't just do things in a vacuum. Like the whole like, oh, someone's going to scoop me. I don't care about that. Like the science is hard enough as is, as amateur biologists, like whether or not you're going to get scooped at something is should be the least important. What's important is getting things to work, understanding what you're doing, enjoying what you're doing, and at the very end, being able to communicate in a way in which other people can find useful, right? Like be a part of a research community. Like it's it's called research culture. And I'm I'm really, really interested in trying to figure out how to how to contribute to that. How can you get um, more people into the fold and have this communal aspect of research? There's a question in the chat. How do you get funding for your research? And has being being non-affiliated to institutes ever been a hurdle for acquiring funding? <sighs> oh boy. Okay, so um, all my quote-unquote research funding is entirely out of pocket. And like I said earlier, I don't work on things that are inaccessible to the average person. Like I am by no means well off, like at all, like especially in my current financial situation, it's a little dicey. Um, but um, through the years, I've found you know suppliers that ship residential that are affordable, things that are, um, uh, my, the research questions that I have tend to be more basic, more fundamental, and not fundamental and just like, I'll unravel the universe, but more of just simple means at first, at least. And because every rabbit hole is near infinite. Um, and so with the small amounts of research money that I have, I mean, my burn rate for like actual research research is like maybe 200 a month, like maybe, right? Um, every now and then I splurge on like synthesis and I buy these things, but then I try to make it up by also selling stuff, right? Like I offer plasmids and I want to be the Arizona iced tea of plasmids or everything I'm going to sell for 20 bucks, no matter what, till the heat death of the universe. And um, being able to just... Uh, offer these things for a small fee to just cover synthesis. Honestly, like I sell my plasmids so I can cover synthesis for more cool stuff. Um, that has been super useful. I found that really, really uh, interesting. And the uh, uh, yeah, and the second was not 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 affiliated to institutes. Has it, has it ever been a hurdle? Uh, tremendously. Like I can't without a PhD and without being part of an institution, I don't have the ability to write grants. Right, I can't apply for grants. I can't um, take uh, federal funding, even if we have our nonprofit all signed off and stuff. Because of our lack of a PhD, um, that kind of blocks you from getting certain levels of funding. And there are some like grants and stuff that you can apply to, but it's um, fundraising is 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 a full time job. And trying to find funds for that versus trying to do research within my tiny budget, 
I found that I do a better job at doing small, thoughtful science than uh, that's kind of the tagline of Binomica than trying to do fundraising. Because again, just being able to fundraise is a skill, it's a talent, it's a full-time job, it's tremendously difficult. There are grants floating out there, right? Like experiment.com, you can do crowdsourcing and stuff. It's just, I'm so uh, adamant about establishing the foundational research tools for other people to be able to use that I don't feel the need to crowdfund this at the moment, like, or to try to find extra funding. Like my projects are small, they stay small. A question. Please. How do you stay motivated when your research projects that look so promising just crash on you? <laughs> uh, thanks, Margaret. That's such a hard question. So motivation. Um, okay. So uh, I've mentored uh, several, a decent chunk of, of, of friends over the last 10 years. And uh, the majority of them were super interested at first, and they, I helped them set up their own home lab. Um, I helped them like walk them through tobacco tissue culture as just kind of like a hello world to tissue culture. And, uh, and they were super excited, and then things started to get difficult. Things were getting contaminated. Things were getting really, um, uh, things were getting disastrously contaminated. People were very um, um, kind of disheartened by the fact that it was just failure after failure. And uh, eventually they're just like, okay, it's not for me. And you know, I don't blame them, right? If, if you, at the end of the day, if you tried and you realize that it's not for you because you don't get that gratification or that you just don't see yourself doing it long-term, that's fine. But motivation has been an interesting uh, point to try to convey to people. Because for me personally, I just find this stuff so damn fascinating. And I have constantly projects on the back burner that I can revisit. So one thing that I found extremely useful to keep motivation is to have several projects on simmer with no like real hard deadline and such that if you're stuck on one, put that aside for a little bit and work on the other one. And having this type of cycle keeps both the enthusiasm alive, keeps things interesting, but also allows you to take a pause from that project and see it with fresh eyes. Because a couple months pause has done wonders for some of the more difficult projects where I was hitting my head against the wall trying to figure that out. So I would not keep your interests insular to one project, right? Just maybe just have several that are that are over, ideally overlapping. Like if you can find this like nirvana-like state where you have multiple projects that overlap towards a common goal. Now, sometimes that can emerge organically. Sometimes that can emerge with great planning. I know people that love planning out every single detail of their experiments. Um, I'm not necessarily one of those. For protocols, yes, as a I guess methods researcher, which was kind of my line of work. Um, that's super important, right? To be very planned out and write everything down. But um, sometimes you have to have an experience before you have the knowledge to run an experiment. And an experience is kind of just winging it. And the experiment has controls. You really think about, think this through. Sometimes you just need a, uh, a wet rehearsal, right? To be able to do the things and know you're going to fail, but do it a little bit uh, haphazardly, safely, obviously, but haphazardly in order for you to be able to um, uh, to effectively run an experiment. And I find that having that experience before running an experiment has made uh, me way less uh, crestfallen or just kind of discouraged when my experiment ultimately fails, because 99% of science is failure. And uh, learning failure and experiencing failure quickly with like early on in your in your practice, I think is super important. Like learning the, the face of failure and just be going like, oh, like, hello, darkness, my old friend type of thing. Like, I know failure. I know it intimately well. Me and failure are best friends. And developing a friendship with failure instead of taking it to your ego has been tremendously helpful for me. So multiple projects and kind of walk with failure is what I would give as advice. Okay, next question is, how do you manage to dispose GMOs? Do you have to apply for a special permission or something? So um, because I only work with biosafety level one, I, follow, I take the NIH guidelines for recombinant work as my personal regulations. Now, it's a little bit murky because there's uh, homeschooling kits that are sent to homes where you do bacterial genetic engineering, and uh, then you're told to bleach them and toss them out. Now, uh, somebody could skimp on that, and that's technically an uh, unlawful release of a GMO, which is a problem. But what I do is that anything that touches GM microbes or GM plants, I run them through the autoclave, and then I get my autoclave validated with this Amazon kit that you send a spore test, it's a spore strip, 
that you just run in your autoclave and then you send it out to a lab and it tells you whether it passes or fails. And that spore test is really sensitive to the temperature and pressure required. And that essentially validates, even if you have a, a pressure cooker, that validates your autoclave so you know that what you're doing, as long as you don't overload it, um, is sterilized. And a lot of life can't survive the autoclave. Once it's uh, sterilized, I then, um, I'm a little paranoid, so after I sterilize stuff, I bleach them as well. I let them sit in bleach uh, for at least an hour, and then I throw them into municipal waste streams. At that point, uh, everything is dead. I've done some personal tests to see how long it takes to do bleaching, and I multiply that by a factor of two. So normally people bleach for 20 minutes. I let it bleach for an hour and uh, after sterilizing. So I'm really meticulous when it comes to disposing of GM waste. But again, these laws are really not catered to being able to do this in a in a in a home environment, right? Like no one thought that you could do GMOs in your PJs, right? Um, for lack of better words. So it's really difficult to um, to really put into words exactly what the letter of the law is, but the NIH guidelines has been adopted in many states as law. And their recombinant lines are very, uh, very straightforward. Um, in terms of zoning and stuff, I have yet to see a law that says you can or can't do BSL-1 work within a residential, within your home, right? There's no law that specifically says thou shalt not do this at home. Um, and if it does, I will lobby the government to hell and back <laughs> because it's a, they don't invest in education, but they also don't want us to explore the living world safely. Um, but that's a that's another discussion altogether. But essentially, yeah, I autoclave and I bleach things. Uh, I validate my autoclave. I find that incredibly important to have a paper trail of validation because in case you ever get in trouble or somebody suspects you of whatever violating some laws, you have a paper trail of doing the best you possibly could to ensure that your disposal is proper. Um, for living things, though, nothing leaves my lab without a permit. So if I make plant GMOs, they stay within the confines of my laboratory. I would love to plant them in my garden, but that's the unlawful release of a, of a, of a genetic, of regulated organism, and that's a federal felony. And because, especially because I want to work with kids, having a felony on your track record is, is even being accused of, of a felony would be the worst thing possible for anybody wanting to do educational adjacent stuff. So I try to stay within the the letter of the law and interpret it to the best of my abilities as a non-lawyer. Yeah. Uh, Adrian asks, uh, hey Sebastian, Adrian here. As you probably know, I'm working on a similar regarding antibiotic-free selection. How's your recombineering going? I presume you're trying to knock the gene, knock in the gene. Are you delivering the homology double-stranded DNA or integrating into a plasma? Okay. So for my knockouts, uh, I'm targeting this gene called TREB, uh, triholose gene. It's a it's an active triholose importer. And that gene, according to the KO collection, was uh, deemed non-essential. They got growth when you knock it out. And so I'm targeting that specifically because the TREB gene happens to seep sucrose during its import. So it allows a small amount of sucrose to seep in as if it would be an ineffective uh, CSCB, a sucrose permease. In fact, the TREB gene, its activity, uh, the seeping of sucrose, then activates the promoter for the CSC operon in the in the microbe so basically a tiny bit of sucrose gets in that activates the CSE operon which produces um, sucrose permeases to allow even more sucrose to come in basically this like feedback loop the microbe senses the sugar it starts making the machines to metabolize the sugar and the the pumps to pump the sugar in um, knocking that out allows you to discreetly control the sucrose coming in because there's no other mechanism for that disaccharide to come into. It's the only hexose importer that actually allows sucrose to come in, as far as I know. And so I'm targeting that. And uh, in terms of the how to do that, I, um, I constructed a plasmid that has homology arms for TREB. And uh, inside I have a standard MCS where I do all my standard cloning, Golden Gate or whatnot. And on the left and right of the MCS are the 50 base pair homology arms. And when I want to do a recombineering event, I, uh, I do PCR, I make sure that the PCR is super bright, and I cut, that, cut the resulting PCR band out of the gel, and then I heat shock that, that band into the uh, cells that already carry the, P46, the P46D, P46DK, I don't remember the actual name for it, but the one that has all the lambda red tools on it. So I made competent cells, and I induced the expression of the exo, beta, and gamma uh, pro uh, proteins within that plasmid. And then I heat shocked my linear construct into that, uh, into the cells carrying that, that already has the lambda proteins expressed. Thank you. And were you successful? 
Um, as far as I know, yes. So the the funny part is that I didn't put a terminator at the end of my canamycin resistance. So in my cassette, I had a um, I had the FUGFP expression circuit, and then I have the canamycin resistance cassette from um, Picambia that I lifted out. Now that canamycin resistance doesn't have an annotated discrete terminator, right? And for for reasons that are going to take too long to explain, but because of that, I'm probably getting read-through effects, and it's affecting some downstream stuff, because only the tiny colonies that grow super slowly actually have a signal positive for GFP. So I definitely got a knock-in, because I did uh, primers that flank outside of my target and then inside of my target, and I'm getting positive, Where while with wild-type, I'm not. I'm not getting any signal on the PCR. So that means I did get the knock-in, but it's affecting its growth, so I have to retool my, my strategy for it. But as far as I know, yeah, I did knock out, I did disrupt that gene. Um, I just haven't been able to grow the cells to high enough density to be able to do some sucrose testing with or without. So another question is, uh, have you thought of getting sponsorships from companies whose reagents or consumables you routinely use? Your social media presence could be leveraged. Yeah. <laughs> so I reached out to the suppliers that I did, uh, that I do use often, and I talk about them. Like I reached out to NEB, I reached out to... Um, uh, Phytotech, I reached out to BioWorld, and I got basically ghosted. They're not necessarily, either they're not interested, or maybe they think that I'm um, kind of like a risky advertiser because I'm in this like gray area. I'm not sure what it might be. Um, but I'd love to reach out. It's just, the more I try to reach out for funding, um, the less time I spend doing the work that will be worth funding, if that makes sense. Like I'm still in the preliminary, even though I've been working on this for a long time, I'm still in that foundational area where I need to prove these tools make sense before I can look out, go out for a funding to make these more accessible and more um, uh, approachable, especially for educators. Like ultimately I want uh, Binomical Labs to be a, cur a curricular provider where we sell curricula, open source curricula, obviously. Um, we sell it to educators as a prepackaged lab module. Like, this is for recombinering, this is for plant genetic engineering, here's for exploring phages within local environments, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of um, avenues for us to be able to do this kind of things and could potentially get sponsorships. But I'm just one person and I found it that, that trying to, the effort needed to do fundraising is tremendously higher than some of the, experiment, the effort that I need to put in to do experiments. And so because this is my hobby and I have a day job, I have to make sure that I'm as effective as possible. So I try to do more experiments with the least with the little money I have. Another question is, do you hold workshops open to the public to learn skills and, sh and, and uh, hands-on stuff? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, um, I would literally like travel with my laminar flow hood to be able to do tissue culture workshops. I did it at, um, I was a scientific consultant for the School of Visual Arts, and we, we ran many, many workshops on plant tissue culture and bacterial art and stuff like that. Uh, we did Maker Fair. Uh, I was basically like a traveling workshop person <laughs> pre-pandemic, and then that kind of fizzled out for obvious reasons. But again, I would absolutely love to. Um, figuring out where would be great, like libraries, like the, the Huntington Library near me. I was talking with Sung about this uh, in, my, in my town just got some funding and they're looking for workshops. So I'm thinking of doing it at libraries, uh, which would be a wonderful place to, to do that because it's a nice communal space where learning is at the forefront. And, uh, and I just need a, a desk. I'll bring my laminar flow hood. I'll bring my ketchup cups with plant tissues in it. Yeah. Um, one question from Zymo is, uh, from Adrian, it says, did you try reaching out to Zymo? So Zymo Research, the, uh, they're wonderful. I didn't reach out to them yet because I don't know what I can offer because their, their kits are really expensive and sometimes they actually don't ship residential and uh that's kind of not the vibe that i'm trying to go for but if they pay me to like go like hey this mini prep kit's really cool and show and have an honest review that'd be wonderful like if i can set up a youtube channel where i do unboxings and reviews for biotech stuff and I say like hey you should buy this or don't buy this and i would be brutally honest because like if i would never ever recommend somebody buy something that i haven't tested personally so it could work. Just again, that's uh, being a YouTuber is definitely a full-time job. And so once I have these foundational tools established and I know that they work well in my hands, then I can start shifting my focus into more like uh, media aspects. Like how can I make, spread these tools? How can I spread these methodologies? How can I make it um, accessible to more people, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, guy says live lab Twitch stream. Yeah, that's something I'm definitely considering, like genuinely, like have a GoPro strapped to my forehead and kind of do a, 
a hangout session while I do tissue culture and explain methods and things like that. I don't know exactly what platform would work best, but I'm definitely open to suggestions and also to collaborations. If you guys already have a channel that you want me to uh, do something with, more than happy to try. Make sure it's that like funny fishbowl angle so it like is extra dramatic. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Just like put the put the 360 camera in my mouth so I look like an Attack on Titan creature just doing tissue culture. Yeah, definitely that Attack on Tissue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, question from Arval. Um, during the initial stages of setting up your lab, how did you get equipment at low cost? Oh, okay. eBay. Oh my God. eBay. They, uh, they don't know what they're selling half the time. And they say broken as is. So, okay, so I've got burned in the past where I brought some lemons and nothing, nothing worked. But um, truly, if you find a, like a PCR machine and it said like you're selling it and there's no, and somebody's selling it and it's saying error, there's a beep code, especially beep codes. Those tend to be motherboard codes that tell you what's wrong with it. If you find a listing online and somebody says there's an error code on a PCR machine, download the manual for it, go into the error section and see if those beep codes mean something that you could fix. Or if it says that it turns on and they haven't been tested, you could gamble if you want. If the price is right, you can gamble. I've actually, my success rate is like about 70, 60, 70%. I've gotten some lemons, but teaching yourself a tiny bit of electrical engineering, just a tiny bit, um, works wonders. Like for example, I've, I've got um, a PCR machine that had a blown fuse. And for 15 cents, I have a $2,000 PCR machine, right? Uh, which works beautifully. There are blown capacitors in older machines, like the, the power supply to the machine. The main filter capacitor tends to be the first thing to go. And uh, you can desolder that and replace it with an equal, um, equal capacity and voltage rating capacitor. And that's also a 30 cent, 15 cent fix. And you've now fixed a machine that would otherwise be in the junkyard. So learning a little bit of electronics has, has saved me tens of thousands on equipment throughout the years. And you can even flip the equipment. You can buy the equipment broken, fix it, and sell it. I mean, I paid for two years of college flipping equipment that way, right? Like I would sell PCR machines on eBay that I validated with the PCR, like an actual reaction. And because of that, you can charge a premium, right? So there are ways in which you can actually financially benefit from learning these repair tools and then keep the best equipment for yourself. Honestly, that is the, 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 the best advice I could ever give on this is just to scour GovDeals if you're the, in, in the United States. GovDeals is just like eBay but they don't offer shipping more often than not. You have to go pick up. But if you do the math, I mean, a friend of mine got an ultra centrifuge working for like 200 bucks. The cost of gas to travel three states to go pick it up and go back is still a tenth of what it would cost to buy that in full. Sometimes a plane ticket plus picking it up is cheaper than the actual thing itself. I know that sounds crazy, but GovDeals is insane. You, you can get some insane stuff and there's no uh, restrictions as to who you are or, who you, or, or what affiliation you have to buy from them. Yeah, um, that's only in the United States. In terms of like Europe and things like that, it's a little bit more dicey, but uh, eBay in Europe worked. Um, like a friend of mine from Italy, I helped her set up a, a, a home lab. Um, several people actually in, in Italy, one in France, uh, two in Germany for just doing like basic microbiology stuff. And they've all done it through, um, through e their local eBay channels. And you can definitely find a lot. The other one, um, Alibaba and AliExpress, if you get familiar and fluent with uh, doing brokerage with some of the Chinese manufacturers, you save enormities. Like most of the, the OEM brands of like centrifuges and stuff are just rebadged Alibaba stuff. So I would definitely recommend going on Alibaba and AliExpress. And one of the brands that I really like, it's called Joan Labs, J-O-A-N-L-A-B-S. Um, they're another rebadger of OEM equipment, original manufacturing equipment, but um, they offer tech support. They have really good warranties and they just select high quality tools. Yeah, so that I would recommend as well. Yeah, Arval, the, <laughs> it's, it's definitely been difficult, but I'm really happy to, uh, to be able to contribute. And so far, like a bunch of professors have, have messaged me and said, hey, um, Thanks so much for recommending this or that. It's been working beautifully in my lab. And that just gives me the warm fuzzies because I'm just some, some random schlub from New York. Um, but I help meaningfully contribute to their lab's processes. And that, that's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, long Thanks story short, if we're in a Last of Us apocalypse, I mean, we got to- Oh, I got you. <laughs> I got you. And to New York, I'm bringing you to California. <laughs> like. <laughs>
Yeah, no, uh, apocalypse science is my my style of science, a hundred percent. Like that is something that I, I live for. I'm I'm almost gearing up for when like the robots invade and we have to restart science. I I'm kind of excited, Loki, because I'm just like I'll I'll be I'll be fine and I'll teach people to be fine. It's like survivalist biotech. Yeah. All the yeah all the, all the PIs are gonna be like, oh, I I haven't set foot in the lab. <laughs> You're like, ha ha. <laughs> Let me show yeah. you how it's. <laughs> yeah, the des desperate like you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, but desperation is the uh, mother of necessity, right? <laughs> like a lot of everything that I know is just because I had no other choice, and I don't yeah. want people to be in that situation. But it's a it's a really good way to teach things. Like when you gotta like if you gotta do PCR with like three cups of water at different temperatures, you gotta do PCR with cups of water. Yeah, I mean. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Sebastian. I mean, it's been a it's been a great journey learning about where you come from and where you're at. And um, yeah, if anyone wants to look at more of his more granular information, it's going to be on SciFind. But also we will be posting a transcript of this. Um, so you can also reaccess some of the nuggets and kernels of information that um, valuable information that Sebastian is um shared with us yeah and uh yeah thanks so much for having me and uh yeah anybody who wants to reach out like i'm sebastian at binomicalabs.org um also find me on twitter where i'm chronically online the phone is like fused to my hip um and uh, i have a blog a tinygreencell.com which i'm going to be posting long long form kind of explorations of that and most likely cross-posting to sci-find anyway because it's just such a great freaking platform um and uh, yeah, yeah. So if anybody, if anyone wants to reach out for anything, um, I'm an open book, literally. And I just want to grow friends and have more people doing biotech. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming through. We'll be having more of these um, every three weeks. So more AMAs to come with other researchers doing cool stuff. All right. Take care, everyone. <laughs> Have a great weekend, you guys.